Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 15th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Okay, well, uh, we've got some really good news, uh, Brian, because uh, Vladimir Zelensky, Vladimir Zelensky, sorry, is in the UK. Uh, meeting Rishi Sunak. This is uh, the image that uh, Rishi pushed out this morning. Uh, we didn't uh, show any of the more uh, e- explicit images because uh, some of the mainstream press have been showing the hugging and the kissing and, and tongues down the throats, this kind of th- thing. Uh, but this is what uh, Zelensky tweeted out this morning. Today, London, the UK is a leader when it comes to expanding our capabilities on the ground and in the air. This cooperation will continue today. I will meet my friend Rishi uh, we will conduct substantive negotiations face to face and in delegations. So, according to the uh, to number ten, anyway, uh, this is the first what they call world leader that uh, Rishi Sunak has hosted at Checkers, uh, and uh, well, uh, uh, Zelensky will update. Uh, Rishi Sunak on his meetings with European leaders over the weekend, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, They're going to talk about uh, how we're going to continue to support Ukraine's needs uh, and how that's going to be expanded to the international community, both in terms of immediate military equipment and long-term defences. And then uh, the number 10 uh, press release also said that last week the UK confirmed that we've provided storm shadow precision missiles to Ukraine. And today, uh, Rishi Sunak will confirm the further UK provision of hundreds of air defence missiles and further unmanned unmanned aerial systems, including hundreds of new long-range attack drones with a range of over 200 kilometres. Do you think that's going to make a difference? Uh, Yeah, it is going to make a difference, Mike. It's going to prolong the conflict and it's going to result in the deaths of uh, tens of thousands more Ukrainians. It will also kill Russians, but it takes us closer to World War III. I find this whole business obscene. If the if the British government wants uh, to get into Ukraine and fight, then we should get the troops in and they should fight on the ground. We should get Ben Wallace in. We should get Rishi Sunak and all the rest of the politicians and their sons and daughters, and they should fight. But what is so obscene is this is a war by UK, NATO against Russia, but using Ukrainians essentially. I, I've... I'm running out of words to describe it. It is obscene. Uh, so uh, Zelensky in the UK today, but uh, he has been on a whistle-stop tour of Europe, as we just mentioned. So here he is uh, in Italy, uh, where he met uh, Pope Francis. He met the uh, Italian Prime Minister and the Italian President. Uh, he said, I'm meeting with the President of Italy, uh, Sergio Mattarella, Prime Minister of Italy, Georgia Maloney, and the Pope. Uh, an important visit for approaching victory of Ukraine. Um, So that was uh, him meeting the Italians. In a second, we'll see him meeting the Germans, uh, because as soon as he finished with Italy, he headed off to Germany, uh, where he met uh, 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 Schultz. There they are shaking hands and so on. Very similar kind of thing. Shake hands with the leader, uh, have a a quick inspection tour, and then have a press conference. This was the kind of format of it. Uh, But of course, it didn't end there, because, uh, well, uh, the Ukraine was awarded uh, the Carl's Prize uh, for 2023. Um, I don't know what we think about that. Uh, this is the Charlemagne Prize. Uh, David, have you got it's, any? It, it, <laughs> it's political Eurovision. It is political Eurovision. Uh, just before I ask comment from David here, 
uh, just make uh, the point that if you if you look at this image, just the very bottom left-hand corner there, you'll see the uh, the medal itself in its box uh, on a stand. Uh, unfortunately, it fell off the stand just apparently spontaneously uh, during his speech, and he had to stop his speech and uh, go and pick it up off the floor. Uh, so I'm not sure who kicked it over. Uh, but uh, anyway, David, uh, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the Charlemagne Prize going to Ukraine? Well, it it's all going towards that that great um, uh, example of of a united Europe, a united, militarily strong, uh, continentally dominant Europe that Charlemagne represents. So, um, well, there is a logic to it. It's a bit grim, though. Uh, indeed. Uh, so coming back to the UK then, uh, this is what uh, Rishi had to say this morning. Uh, this is a crucial moment in Ukraine's resistance to a terrible war of aggression they did not choose or provoke. And uh, well, did they or did they not? Did the UK or how much involvement did the UK have in uh, the, any provocation uh, of Russia? I just want to remind everybody because the end of the uh, of the press release that uh, number 10 issued today. They said that uh, since the outbreak of full-scale war, the UK has also trained 15,000 Ukrainian troops in the UK on top of 22,000 troops trained in Ukraine between 2014 and 2022 under Operation Orbital. Now, many people won't be aware of Operation Orbital, uh, but this is the badge that uh, the participants all wear. Uh, and uh, uh, you can see the UK flag uh, above. Um, and so, well, the press release said 2014. In fact, Operation Orbital, this is the UK's training mission to Ukraine. It was established, uh, according to the UK, following the illegal annexation of Crimea by Russia. That's the UK's words. Uh, it was established in 2015. Um, and uh, so the UK, the UK government adopted a decision to establish a training group of British instructors uh, called Operation Orbital and to deploy British military personnel to Ukraine to provide guidance and training to the Ukrainian armed forces. It's almost as if they had figured already by that point that some kind of conflict with Russia was inevitable and maybe uh, they were doing a little bit to, to provoke that themselves. But anyway, uh, here we move on to uh, 2018. Um, and Orbital, which had up to that point just been about land forces, uh, was extended to the maritime domain. Uh, so this uh, brought in instructor teams from the Royal Navy, the Royal Marines, uh, to re uh, train the Ukrainian Navy following threats to the Azov Sea or in the Azov Sea. And then in 2019, uh, the UK government decided to extend Operation Orbital until 2023. Uh, we'll see whether it gets any further extension in Ukraine itself, but obviously uh, the the... the the new way is for the Ukrainians to come to the UK for training instead. Yeah, I, I didn't quite catch the second figure there, but I think you were talking about a batch of 17,000 troops and a batch of 22,000. 15,000 uh, uh, that they've trained uh, in the UK in the yeah. last year and 22,000 right. that they've trained in 15 and 22 yes. in, in theatre, so 37,000 troops. And the key question for the UK government is how many of those men are still alive? And if they went to the front, the answer is very few of them. Yes. In the meantime, then, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, after today's meeting with, uh, with Zelensky, is himself going to fly off to the Council of Europe, Europe Summit in Reykjavik. Uh, that's taking place uh, tomorrow and uh, Wednesday. Uh, Zelensky is going to join that meeting uh, virtually, apparently. Uh, but uh, Rishi uh, is uh, supposedly going there to try to uh, raise weapons 
we should say, for Ukraine. This is all about uh, um, getting support for Ukraine, but also he's apparently going to be speaking to people at the uh, Council of Europe about the, the migration problem in the UK. Okay, but mainly it's about uh, weapons for Ukraine. And then he's off to the G7 uh, in, in Japan, uh, where he is again attempting to uh, raise weapons or raise money for weapons and supplies and so on. Um, so he's going to drive, he says, new investment in the UK from Japan. But it's mainly, again, about security and support for Ukraine. So he's uh, on his tour of, uh, of the world. David? I'll just point out it's Hiroshima in Japan. That's right. Just, yeah. just, just seeing. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. This is a good point. Yeah, okay. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, we have uh, NATO, the latest NATO exercises going on. Uh, and uh, well, that's not very good for global warming, is it? Well, I this, mean, this particular outrageous shocking. should be an electric tank. Well, it should be an electric tank. Yeah, uh, this is exercise spring storm. Uh, so 1500 troops going over to on top of the what's already uh, in the enhanced forward presence battle group in uh, in Estonia. Uh, so personnel from all three services of the uh, armed forces being deployed in uh, Estonia to carry out uh, exercises and operations. I'm not sure what, can you explain what's the difference between an exercise and an operation? An operation, I would have thought, was something which is happening. Well, the operation should be reality. Well, exactly. Yeah. So if it's exercises and operations, then what are they actually doing in Ukraine, uh, sorry, in, in Estonia. So 14,000 personnel from 11th uh, NATO countries are going to demonstrate their interoperability in uh, multi-domain training exercises as part of this. Uh, and uh, well, so let's see, what well, we got the RAF are going to carry out training exercises in reconnaissance and airland integration. And my question is, uh, is it just going to be exercises? Uh, I don't know. But anyway, this is what Ben Wallace had to say. While the Russian army continues their illegal invasion of Ukraine, threatening stability in Europe, the UK and our allies will continue to support Ukraine and defend our shared values and freedom. So that's the comment that he made with respect to this exercise. So people can make up their own minds as to whether this is just about a training program or whether there's something going on under the, uh, under the cover of a training program. Um, that shared, val shared values and freedom under the rules-based international order, of course. Yes. Well, a very, very quick summary of, um, of what's happening on the battlefront. And the key bit is Ukraine uh, has started an offensive. I, I've, I'm using clips from a variety of people. I'm giving recognition to the people who are spending the time to analyse what's happening because, of course, we can't trust mainstream media or the BBC. So this one is showing the Donbass area around Bakhmut and the yellow arrows are showing the general direction of Ukrainian attacks. Don't be fooled by the size of the arrows because the, the uh, size of ground that the Ukrainians have taken is generally very small a kilometer a mile into Russian territory. Losses on both sides have been exceptionally heavy. Um, but over the last couple of days in particular, things have stabilized and do not appear to have moved forward on the Ukrainian side. But recognition to the bravery of the Ukrainian troops because they are out there doing the bidding of the West and attacking the Russians so Zelensky can get more weapons. So if we bring in the next one, this is uh, uh, from Weeb Union, so a different source, but we're seeing the same thing, attacks around uh, the flanks of Bakhmut. 
And um, if I just bring in another one here, you can see a little bit more detail of one of the areas, the depth of the uh, salient, which is just to the northwest of Bakhmut, is about two kilometers or a little bit under. Um, so the Ukrainians moved forward over the frontline trenches of the Russians, but then were stopped by the rear troops. And that is the pattern now across the battlefield. So attacks have taken place in other sectors up to the north. Um, this area, possibly about 50,000 Ukrainian troops spread uh, between a northern attack and a southern attack, uh, but it's very difficult to pin down the actual numbers of troops. Um, two um, Russian aircraft were shot down, an Su-25 and an Su-24, and also uh, an Mi-8 um, helicopter. And this is the result of the Ukrainians bringing uh, their air defences forward in the battlefield. But this is not a major offensive, it would appear at the moment, by the Ukrainians, and many of the commentators doubt whether they can do it. If we have a look at Bakhmud, uh, this is the so-called citadel area of the Ukrainians. So this is uh, an area of high-rise buildings, which, they, uh, which were all heavily fortified. And the Wagner forces are now in through the perimeter and they maintain that they have 20 key buildings to take, but sometimes it's taking a day or two days to take each building. But um, perhaps most importantly, the Russians have unleashed a ferocious missile attack on uh, uh, staging areas and ammunition dumps, uh, not only close to the front itself, but deep into Ukraine. Let's have a look at footage of this massive explosion. So a massive explosion, nobody quite knows how many tons, hundreds of tons of uh, munitions uh, were taken out in that Russian attack but clearly a massive amount of ammunition. And if you listen carefully, you could hear that there were continuous explosions going on as munitions exploded after the, the main strike. Uh, if we look at this embedded clip here, we'll just play this uh, on the screen for you. If you pop it on. And uh, this one should come up. And uh, the significance of this is you can see the scale of these explosions in relations to the buildings that you can see in the foreground. So is this, um, is this UK taxpayers' money going up in smoke? Is this uh, depleted uranium? Nobody knows, but we know that uh, the Russians now are playing a really hard game and they're going for all of the munitions and the reinforcements from uh, NATO. Uh, there's the sheer scale of that. And uh, we have to say what is in that smoke and what is actually 
uh, now being dumped over the poor Ukrainian population. Um, if we carry on through, there's quite a lot of talk over social media, which we're, we're challenging at the moment, but people are saying that, is it possible that there was depleted uranium shells in that dump? Uh, we're going to ask the question, what does happen when UK's depleted uranium shells are destroyed? Uh, does that result in um, an increase in radiation in the area? So this is circulating. We are at the moment not convinced by what's circulating on social media, but the fear factor is one thing. The truth is another we're going to thank Alex O from Berkham Hampstead, who was kind enough to say he's recording radiation levels in UK on his own home Geiger counter. And he's going to be um, keeping us informed about what picture he sees. So we'll hopefully have more from Alex. But you've got some comments on this as well. Well, Mike. just because uh, you know that those graphs were, were circulating around the place. So I wanted to see the source and the source is the Joint, joint Research Centre uh, Radioactive Environmental Monitor Monitoring uh, website for the European Commission. Uh, and if we have a look at, uh, at that particular um, measurement, we can see 157, a daily average uh, for uh, gamma radiation, 157 nanosieverts per hour. Uh, and we look at that's the graph that's been circulating on social media. And, uh, you know, the implication on social media is that where you see that uh, uh, massive rise to the right hand side, from about 95 nanosieverts to uh, what's that about 150 or so that seemed to coincide with the with the the uh, day to the explosion the explosion the day of the explosion but actually if you zoom in on that uh, it's not the 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 rise happened two days before the explosion um, so there must be some other explanation for this and I'd like to know uh, what that explanation is uh, but um, so that's why we're still. Uh, that's sceptical about exactly what the cause of that rise is. Right. But uh, we prolong the war. This is, these type of attacks are going to increase. And David, just uh, before you move on, this uh, must be taking us ever closer to World War Three. Well, this is the question, you know, how the, the more effective the Ukrainians are, and this, you covered the, the small scale counters attacks that are going on just now, um, that's one thing, the more effective the Ukrainian counterattacks are, the more likely it is that the Russians will look to um, to take out some of the people, some of the supply lines that are helping the Ukrainians. And that, of course, would bring them more directly in, into conflict uh, with NATO. So this is vastly dangerous. And uh, nobody, it would appear, in uh, Western governments seems to care. I, I would even go further. They don't they're not, it's not that they don't care, they absolutely care. They're absolutely enthusiastic that we maintain those supplies running and, and they, uh, in some cases, are openly calling for direct confrontation. I'm talking about Tobias Elwood there as an example. So it goes oh, yes. beyond not caring. Uh, anyway, David, let's move yeah. on to, to health. And uh, well, what's going on with blood clot deaths? Well, here we've got Medscape UK reporting and they're raising the alarm over the blood clot deaths because they're still elevated. And they're, saying, they're pointing out a really very worrying fact. They say that vital information about the serious condition is not being published three years after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thrombosis UK, a charity, warned that deaths involving blood clots are higher than expected. Before the pandemic hit hospitals, 
were publishing data on the number of patients who had been assessed for blood clots. In March 2020, NHS England took the decision to suspend data collection um, on uh, venous thromboembolism, also known as VTE, risk assessments to, quote, release capacity in providers and commissioners to manage the COVID-19 pandemic. Data collection publication is yet to re resume. Um, given the fact that we've, we've got elevated deaths way beyond anything we had during the pandemic, uh, trademark, um, and given the fact that blood clots are a known side effect of the vaccine, um, what could possibly be worse than not collecting that data at this point, gentlemen? Uh, well, I would I would throw the question back to you then and say um, if you knew in advance or you suspected in advance uh, one of the outcomes of a mass vaccination program using a uh, jab which uh, had not been properly assessed, tested and uh, given clinic, proper clinical trials, if you knew that the possible outcome of that was blood clots and, uh, and heart conditions, uh, and perhaps you didn't want that evidence gathered, then you, obviously you would switch off the uh, data collection at that point. Well, there's a thought, yes. Um, on a related matter here, um, there was an excellent turnout and an excellent event um, organised by the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago. Here it's been reported in the Scottish Daily Express, a very good and detailed piece um, saying how the vaccine injured feel abandoned uh, and many feeling suicidal. Um, the photograph here of the leading members of, uh, of, of the group, uh, Ruth O'Rafferty, John Watt, Louise Whitford, Andrew Carlin and Alex Mitchell. Uh, many of these people I've met and um, more power to their elbow for, in the campaign they're running. Uh, Alex um, Mitchell, um, who, had, who had to have an, a leg amputated because of his reaction, says he knows of nine people who have taken their lives due to their injuries. He said they've had enough of the gaslighting, the pain, the fact that nobody's listening to them and the whole world has turned against them. And Ruth added, we're offering support to people who are desperate. I was speaking to somebody just last week who was admitting that they were really, really desperate. They're in their bed. They have been in their bed for 18 months. Because they don't have long COVID, they don't have access to long COVID clinics. They're not getting any medical help because they said they thought it was the vaccine. Um, and the ministerial response to this comes from Public Health Minister Jenny Minto. She said, like any vaccine, COVID-19 vaccines can cause side effects, most of which are mild or moderate. Serious or long-lasting side effects are rare but possible. I don't remember them saying that before when they were actually administering the vaccines, but still. These side effects need to be continuously balanced against the expected benefits in preventing illness. Uh, are they being? I would question that as well. So vaccines are continually monitored to detect adverse events, and public health bodies in Scotland and across the globe are closely monitoring for unexpected side effects following COVID-19 vaccination. Now, gentlemen, that's not true. I've written to public health bodies in Scotland, and they just say, we're not doing this. We're just asking the MHRA. It's all about what they say. We just, we just do what we're told. So this idea that there's lots of bodies in Scotland and all around the world looking at the safety of this is not true. There are very few, like the MHRA, um, uh, the FDA in America, and everyone's deferring to them. And we know the standard of checking we're getting from that source. This is very worrying.
Um, on a slightly different note, but relating to COVID, uh, I came across um, this, uh, it's, a, it's a comedy uh, set from uh, a comedian called James Donald Forbes McCann, a fine Scottish name. Um, and he's talking about his recollections and feelings after the so-called pandemic. Um, and what I, I wanted to play this because you can see the penny dropping. You can see the realisation um, of the mistakes that were made by the general public in how they reacted to this and how they reacted to the campaign run to frighten them. Um, I think it's very encouraging that people like this are speaking out in this manner. This long-running police investigation here in Scotland of the SNP's finances. Wrong one. Well, it's sorry, the... that's the wrong video. Okay, well, that's I do apologise, and we don't have we don't have it, well, David. I'm sorry. Well, uh, David, we we can okay. help you out here because we we've got a couple of other clips, uh, and really, uh, people speaking out. We're going to have a look at uh, the. Uh, the EU Parliament, but uh, let's just give credit where it's due. So I received an email here from Andy, uh, said I'm a follower of Richard Vobes on, on YouTube, also a member of UK Column, and um, it gave me a link through to some videos, and I watched the videos. Uh, this is it, International Covid Summit 3, which was the 3rd of May. Um, this was held in the European Parliament, and my goodness, two MEPs, uh, standing up to be counted. Um, now, the first clip is a little bit long because it's four minutes long. So we'll probably watch a couple of minutes of it. You'll get a feel for it. Um, but these two men, in my opinion, doing what our MPs should be doing. Uh, of course, we've got Sir Christopher um, Chope and we've got Andrew Bridgen. Um, but now we see that even in the European Parliament, um, MEPs are speaking out. Let's have a listen to part of the first clip. And to welcome you here today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Christian Terhish, along with my colleague Ivan Sinchich, uh, and some more colleagues right here in the front row. Uh, we are welcoming all of you in the European Parliament. Uh, thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for fighting, I would say, for the same cause all over the world. In October of 2021, when we started the first press conference in Strasbourg, where we tried to defend, first of all, our rights as MEPs to enter this building without a green certificate, and the rights of all the workers uh, helping us right now, translating and doing all the technical work uh, to be able to enter and do their job without being conditioned of a green certificate, we haven't realized at that point in time about the gravity and the seriousness of everything that was happening around the world. Initially for us, it was a matter of principles. We were elected by the people for the people. We should have been allowed to enter the building to perform what we were elected for. So we started small. We were four MEPs initially. All four of us are here. But then after two weeks, more MEPs reached out to us. When we posted the first press conference online, we were shocked by the many thousands of emails that we received from all over the world telling us, well, finally, someone is saying something. 
because everybody looked around and said, well, it's not good what is happening, but, you know, nobody, I would say, in politics or in civil society or even in the media was talking seriously about what was happening. So we started small and just by kept asking questions, you know, presenting what was happening from our perspective, you know, more and more people got engaged. But on the other side of the, of, of the ocean, you guys were doing what you were doing from a medical perspective. So now after a year and some months, we are kind of meeting together, you know, here in the European Parliament. On one side, us as MEPs fighting for freedom, for liberty in Europe. In our case, I saw that many members of the U.S. Congress are doing the same thing in the United States and in many other countries around the world. And I think the event today that we are hosting here in the European Parliament, the International COVID Summit, the third edition, it is important mainly for all of us, you know, to share ideas and to know each other and to uh, uh, maybe come up with what we could do in the future. But more importantly, this event, it's important for all the hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions of people who will hear about this event and watch us. Because what happened... So, in my opinion, uh, this is really excellent uh, MEP standing up, he's pulling people together. He's actually, he's actually talking about uh, what can be done and he's acknowledging the fact that ultimately that scientists were not listened to. And uh, uh, really these people need our support. Let's have a listen to the colleague, his colleague speaking, another MEP. And uh, this is really showing us what can be done when people start to speak out, the numbers grow, and of course if his support comes in, the speed at which it grows will increase. Thank you very much, dear colleague. Dear guests, dear friends, and all of our colleagues, welcome to International COVID Summit and welcome to European Parliament. We will be discussing scientific, social, medical, and legal findings of the past three years of COVID crisis. Now, in my opening speech, I must state that I am honored to be with you all here today. I had an opportunity to be present at the first International COVID Summit in Rome in 2021, which had a focus on early treatments. I remember those were very dark times. I'm also very proud that you, during the heart of the COVID crisis, had spoken the scientific truth while under heavy mainstream media shelling and government discreditation attempts. In the meantime, we have been proven right on so many things, while the narrative of the pandemic marketing, as we call it in Croatia, has collapsed. It was us who followed the science, but we also followed human rights, rule of law, and the principle of freedom. Some bureaucrats and politicians in European institutions, national governments, and regulatory agencies are not yet ready to admit that they were wrong because that would mean accountability, even before criminal law. But we will keep reminding them they will have to face consequences because the tide has turned against them. We are here to exchange findings and to send a strong message to European lawmakers and government agencies. The people of Europe and the world is expecting this from us. I am here today looking forward to hear your presentations on patents, effects of mandates on early treatments, vaccine efficacy, effects on reproductive system, children, 
all-cause mortality, freedoms and legality surrounding COVID crisis, and many others. Thank you very much. So uh, accountability, we're now using the right words. These people are going to be held accountable for their actions. But both these MEPs really spelling out the picture um, that uh, many, many people injured. They're recognising the mortality and they're saying we are going to do something about it. So I'm, I'm looking at those two men and I'm looking at what is happening in UK Parliament and it's shameful, David. David. Well, this is my point. We, we had one parliamentarian um, say things like this in Westminster, the mother of parliament, and he was hounded out of the Conservative Party and called a racist and anti-Semite for his trouble. Uh, well, David, uh, what I would say to that is um, at least all that happened to him was he was hounded out of his uh, powers bad enough. But in Germany, uh, Sukrat Bakhti, unfortunately, uh, is uh, significantly worse off because uh, he's not just being hounded out of any particular organisation, he's being prosecuted uh, for the comments that he made. And some of the comments that he made uh, were echoed by uh, Andrew Bridgen. So let's just have a look. Uh, Sukrat Bhakti, of course, a uh, member of Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, and has been featured on many of the doctors, all of the Doctors for COVID Ethics symposiums that we have helped uh, run. Um, he is, I think, Brian, a, an absolute gentleman. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. He has published hundreds of uh, scientific papers on a range of different issues. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. But unfortunately, uh, some of his comments were taken uh, to be in breach of German legislation. So let's look at what he is actually being uh, prosecuted or accused of having incited hatred against a religious group and attack the human dignity of others by insulting and maliciously disparaging that religious group while acting in concert in a manner likely to disturb the public peace. That's one charge. Uh, the other charge is having publicly trivialized an act committed under the rule of the National Socialism of the kind described in Section 6, brackets 1 of the International Criminal Code in a manner likely to disturb public peace. Um, so this uh, has arisen uh, following two events. Uh, one was an interview that he gave uh, in Germany uh, to Mr. Kai Stutt, uh, and that interview was published uh, in uh, on several platforms online in 2021 in July. Uh, the interview in that interview he criticised what Israel had been doing to to the Israeli people during the pandemic, uh, and then he spoke uh, subsequently at a campaigning event in Kiel in Germany uh, on also in July of that year to approximately 200 people. And uh, well, this is this was probably the comment which uh, got him into trouble. In particular, this final goal is the creation of the new reality and involves nothing less than the second Holocaust. And of course, he was talking to the uh, talking about the MR, mRNA, uh, the rollout of mRNA jabs and uh, and so on. So uh, he made comments. Uh, and as I say, David, uh, anybody that's spoken to Sukrat Bhakti knows just what a gentleman he is. He was in no way. Uh, making any, any making any disparaging comment about any group, uh, he was comparing uh, what Western governments were doing, and in one case, the Israeli government was doing to their own people, um, and he was comparing it to, to historical events. But uh, I'm I'm just staggered that this is reaching uh, a court case. It is now coming to court in Germany on the 23rd of May, 
Uh, I don't know what to say any more than that. It's it's really horrendous. I mean, you're absolutely right. The 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 gentleness with which he approaches this subject is is manifest for all to see. Um, the idea that uh, this this label of anti anti Semitic can be can be put on someone, a Holocaust denial can be put on someone simply for mentioning the Holocaust as a point of comparison is is ludicrous. It's absolutely beyond belief. And here we see the problem of having laws which prohibit speech, right? Because some people didn't like what a Canadian German um, Ernst Zundel said about um, about the Holocaust. Um, we're now we've made laws that mean that anyone who mentions it, who who falls foul of a particular political power structure, um, can be can be pinned to the wall using this um, entirely unjustified, unjustifiable legislation against free speech. It's ridiculous. Uh, now, the the issue here is even if it, even if this goes to court and he's and he's completely exonerated. Um, this will have harmed him personally very severely. This is to intimidate him and anyone who wants to stand up alongside him and talk about how much harm the vaccines are actually doing. Have they got the message? Uh, what, what do I notice there, Mike, if the um, charge that you put on the screen is, is actually the wording of the charge? Right, apologies for that. That was completely my fault. I pressed the wrong button. We should explain. Stephanie is on holiday this week. And so for the first time in goodness knows how many months, I'm pressing the buttons here. And uh, so it might take me a little while to get back into the way of things. But anyway, apologies for that. Go back to what you were saying. Well, what, what I was... Um... What I was talking about, Mike, is if if the wording of the charge against Bakhti that you had on the screen is correct, it's only talking about a religious group. Why should we be shy about talking about the Jewish community if the problem is indeed with the Jewish community? Um, let's get the whole thing out into the open and discuss it properly and deal with it in the right way. But it's the way it's done in an undertone. We don't want to really talk about the issue. We don't really want to mention it, and we should. That's that's an opinion on it. But I, is he going to be um, exonerated of these charges, or is he going to prison? Uh, well, that remains to be seen. David? He raised the issue of Israel and the way the Israeli government were treating the Israeli people. This was an entirely justifiable thing to do because Israel was the most vaccinated country in the world. And, and out of this giant experiment, giant medical experiment on the Jewish population, I would point out, conducted by their own government, came a lot of very interesting data. And the data did not validate the vaccination program, quite the reverse. And you saw different communities within Israel adopt different policies towards the vaccination program and have different health outcomes. The data was very, very interesting and very telling. So it was entirely appropriate that he would be pointing to that example because it was the most statistically important and valid example that we had at the time. Uh, that's absolutely right. Now, uh, I just want to finish this little segment uh, with a little bit of video. 
because uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Sukhra Bhakti attended uh, a lecture which is being given by a Swiss, Swiss author and historian, Daniel Genser. Uh, and this was in Kiel in Germany. And so I just want to let people see the kind of support uh, that he has, if you haven't seen this video already, because what happened was absolutely spontaneous once people saw uh, Sukrit arriving uh, to join uh, the rest of the audience to watch this presentation. So I just wanted to show that, just to show the support that he has in, in the local community, and we'll see what happens when that goes to court. Uh, but uh, you know, if anybody uh, would like to offer support, of course, I'm quite certain that would be very much appreciated. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. I'd be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do uh, share anything you find on the various platforms, including UK Core, especially ukcolumn.org. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, uh, Mark Anderson will be coming on screen with us shortly, but we'd just like to say to our viewers and listeners that the excellent article by Mark, Meet the Urban Seven, the bridge from global cities to world governance policy circles, uh, that's been posted on the UK Column website. It's a really excellent analysis of everything to do with the city-states and the increasing power of uh, mayors associated with those cities. Um, and where does that take This us? is uh, David. I think this is David. Yeah, so this is uh, Tom Doyle interview. It's up on the website just now. This is on uh, clerical child abuse with particular reference to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Tom Doyle is a former priest and is, has dedicated his life to fighting this, uh, this ill. And uh, I would have to say, of all the people I've talked to, and I've talked to quite a number in this field, I found him to be astoundingly well informed and well judged in what he said. I've already had really interesting responses uh, via email from people who have seen this interview and have been similarly impressed. So um, I hope people will check that out. Okay, thank you, David. Well, we'd also like to uh, um, say that the Public Child Protection Wales fundraiser went ex is going extremely well. So UK Column um, supporting alongside Lu Louise Collins Collins from Liberty Tactics, the work of these very brave mums and dads. I was corrected over that, is mums and dads. And you can see there that funds are now coming in uh, towards the uh, 100,000 goal. I kept my pledge and paid £10 per child in the Gerrish family and £10 for the grandchildren. And I suggested that maybe that ought to be the way people looked at it. This is about our children and I'd encourage anybody who feels they can give uh, to help these mums before um, the courts effectively try and bankrupt them. A bit of fantastic response from UK Column uh, supporters. It has been lovely to yes. see. And thank you very much for that. Uh, now, uh, an event taking place uh, in, well, right across the world. Uh, so this, uh, hey, globalists, you've overplayed your hand. 
uh, we see you, we know your plans, guess what, we are many, we're united. And so there's going to be an event taking place uh, on the 20th of May. Uh, now, the UK locations are Newcastle, Swansea, London, Ashford, Bristol, Portsmouth, P7, Totnes, Aberdeen, Nottingham and Canterbury. Uh, and uh, so um, I suggest that everybody gets onto uh, the website. The details will be in the show notes, of course, uh, and uh, gets along to that on May the 20th. Uh, in the meantime, I just wanted to highlight this petition. Uh, it's on the Ripple's website. It's no knighthood for Boris Johnson's dad. Uh, so what it's saying is uh, Boris Johnson is trying to hand a knighthood to his own father, Stanley Johnson. Uh, this absurd level of corruption cannot stand. Johnson has nominated his father to become a sir as part of his re re resignation honours. Uh, and that was revealed by the Times. Uh, and so they're saying this is a list that outgoing prime ministers get to choose, but it's unprecedented to select your own family members. Uh, so Boris Johnson's track record of nepotism and appointments, according to this petition, having previously put his brother and several close friends into the House of Lords. Uh, and so uh, the current is 28,258 signatures, at least when I took that screenshot. Uh, there's the URL if you would like to uh, get involved in that one yourselves. Okay, well, uh, we'll just uh, put this one on screen. So thank you to the viewer that pointed it out to me that within a couple of days of becoming king, uh, Charles was busy breaking the ground at Cambridge University's Whittle Lab, which will be leading the global, which, sorry, which will be the leading global centre for net zero aviation and energy. So um, Charles, in no time at all, back into his World Economic Forum agenda, and um, we'll be keeping a close eye on him. Um, also, like to pop this one on screen, which is that uh, uh, Jeff emailed us really with some worries: what is going to happen when you, the UK column, are targeted by the censors? How are you going to deal with it? Well, we have taken some steps to protect ourselves from that, but at the end of the day, the only way we can protect ourselves is to have massive support. Uh, from UK column viewers and wider audience. So if you like what we're doing and you want to keep us going, support us and uh, tell others about us. David. And of course, we have had quite a bit of attack from the census. We're, we're banned from YouTube, it would seem. Certainly the main site is uh, long gone. And anything with Mike Robinson attached to it seems to be particularly hated by YouTube. I'm only just back on Twitter after a two-year ban for telling the truth about COVID vaccination damage. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, we are facing this and we've been banned from other sites as well. Vimeo, wasn't it? They, they, they threw us off for, uh, again, speaking out about vaccine damage. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, of course, uh, David, we should never forget that uh, the, 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 censored, the censorship attack on us began really with... Uh, the authority for television and the band in 2013 and 2014. So we've been, uh, we're getting quite experienced at this now. But anyway, uh, let's move on and uh, welcome Mark to the program. Now on Friday, Friday's news program, Mark uh, Patrick Henningsen was talking about uh, Title 42 and the immigration situation in Texas. Uh, let's uh, get up to date on that. Yes, uh, uh, great to be here. I'll also be announcing Bilderberg's uh, machinations a little bit later in today's show. Yes, Title 42 indeed ended this past Thursday at midnight uh, U.S. time. And of course, that's that uh, pandemic era health regulation that was one criteria or criterion rather to keep people out or to expel them 
from the United States over so-called uh, COVID transmission concerns. And uh, now the U.S. is under Title VIII, the basic border laws, the basic border protection laws. And uh, this is a news item. I believe this came from PBS, the equivalent of your BBC on this slide. Just a little bit here. The Biden administration announced new policies this week that would help migrants seek new legal pathways to enter the U.S., but also tamp down on illegal entry into the U.S. Now, that's not altogether honest. I'll explain a little bit later what those new policies are. But there is concern that efforts from lawmakers in the White House will not address the number of people trying to enter the country. Title 42 reportedly has been used more than 2.8 million times to remove migrants. Now, moving on from there, uh, we have a little more detail here. I won't read it all. This was that same uh, news announcement from the uh, uh, public, public broadcasting. Uh, I'll read the last part. Migrants are now essentially banned from seeking asylum in the U.S. if they first don't seek protection in countries that they traveled through or applied online. Families allowed in as their immigration cases progress will face curfews and GPS monitoring. Meanwhile, new migration hubs, there it is, will be stationed in Colombia and Guatemala with plans to open 100 more in the Western Hemisphere. Now, what that is, is in a weird way, the Biden administration is borrowing a page from Trump. Trump had the Remain in Mexico policy where um, people seeking asylum would have to remain on the Mexican side of the border and apply and not be allowed to get a toehold in the United States. Now, Biden would seem to be being Trump on steroids now. Biden is basically proposing these regional application centers, possibly hundreds of them strung out across Central America. So if you're a Guatemalan and you want to come to the United States, you'll have a local place reasonably close to go apply for asylum to the U.S. So that's like remain in Guatemala or remain in Honduras, not just remain in Mexico. So this would seem to be outdoing Trump. But the people I've talked to that work the border, their concern is that what this will what actually mean is even more people will be allowed to enter the United States. And the um, asylum rules, um, the concern is that they'll be loosened too much. And then uh, in a more clandestine, less visible manner, um, even more people will be allowed into the United States without the uh, uh uh, clashes at the border and without people camping out at the border, which is very visible and creates a lot of concerns and anxiety. So Biden would appear to be being very tough on illegal immigration, but but people that have been watching this a long time are saying, wait a minute, he's just trying to be more subterranean about it and create almost like an underground railroad. So we'll have to see how this pans out <clears throat> in the weeks, months, and years ahead, literally. So lots of titanic changes and lots to look out for. Uh, this next item here, uh, Texas bill would create state-run border protection unit as Title 42 ends. <clears throat> now, one of my guys on the ground, literally in the weeds um, at the border in Maverick County, uh, northwest of me, about 200, 300 miles away, um, he's telling me that uh, this Texas bill, HB 20, may have been scuttled by the Speaker of the House and the Texas legislator, Dade Phelan. But from what I can gather, the Texas bill HB 20 to create this border protection unit 
may have got a new lease on life by being uh, uh, created, or excuse me, uh, attached to another bill as an amendment. So it, it appears that the bill has been revived. That's a little bit tentative, but my, my sources say the bill's been revived by being made into an amendment attached to another bill. So HB 20 is not dead yet, you might say. And HB 20, as I note here, would create a state immigration unit to, quote, arrest, apprehend, or detain persons crossing the Texas-Mexico border unlawfully, something traditionally that's been the preserve of the federal government. So this is a little bit of a small taste of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Uh, Texas is trying to pass this bill that evidently Governor Abbott would sign. I think he knows he'd be too unpopular if he didn't sign it. And that would make Texas a little bit more like a nation state. And therefore, it would have broader autonomy if this bill passes to do what the federal government would normally do, absent the federal government doing what it ought to do. So that's what this bill is about. Um, however, um, there's um, uh, federal legislation to HB2, a sweeping bill that, among other things, would make asylum applications more stringent. This is at the Washington level. And it would restart construction of the Trump era border wall and reopen immigration prisons closed by the Biden administration. I'm not aware of any prisons because this is a rather biased website and it calls detainment uh, facilities, which are not really prisons in the full sense. It calls them prisons. So you got a lot going on there with HB2 at the federal level, HB20 at the state level in Texas. Will Texas take that extra step and uh, be more? nationhood-like in its approach to these things, with uh, the Biden, Biden administration apparently dropping the ball. Now, moving on, uh, this is from, this next item is from Wyatt, one of my main contacts uh, in the field. It's, a, it's a, a description of Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, and Wyatt is among about 15 people right now in Maverick County uh, in the Del Rio district of the U.S. Border Patrol, what they're doing is they're patrolling about a mile and a half at least of border frontage along the Rio Grande River. And just this past Thursday, a quick note, they repelled 62 people and made them go across the border, across the river, back into Mexico, I mean. And there were about eight more that had to go back across when their boats sank or took on water. Uh, because Right as uh, Title 42 was sunsetted, we've had some of the heaviest rain we've seen along the border in a long, long time. And it came along right at that point, of time, point in time, including in my neck of the woods in the Rio Grande Valley sector of the Border Patrol. And so that has created uh, rising Rio Grande River levels, and it's made the trip across the river very, 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 very treacherous. Now, this, this part about Article 4, Section 4, we'll get into that a little bit, and it's the next slide here in line. Article 4, Section 4, uh, the one before that. Yeah, okay. Article 4, Section 4, uh, this is from Wyatt's uh, Facebook page, um, Texas Lives Matter, with capital M-A-N, Matter. Article 4, Section 4 of our Constitution, the U.S. one, requires our government to protect and defend our borders. In that in that part of the Constitution, it says the federal government will guarantee each state a Republican form of government and will protect each state against invasion. That's what it specifically says in the Constitution. 
if the government does not, um, if the excuse me, if government does not, by the Constitution, by virtue of the named part therein, it authorizes the free citizens to, to defend themselves and their state in place of treasonous government. Note in not defending our borders. The language is a little jumbled there, but basically it's just saying that if the federal government, um, if it fails to enforce the border, it's acting in the opinion of these border watchers, it's acting in a treasonous manner. And therefore, not only the state of Texas, but free citizens acting on their own volition have the right and duty uh, to protect the border, protect their ranches, protect their, their homesteads, and so on and so forth. And the state at large, they feel. So um, now getting on um, with a, a little bit more data, you might recall last week I had kind of sketchy data on the number of border crossings. But this is uh, pretty pretty recent stuff here. This is just this past October 2022, moving into um, uh, 2023, I believe that's what it is. Yeah, okay. No, these are the different lines. Right, excuse me. Uh, the, the orange line is 2020, and we had um, October through September, we had um, about 50,000 uh, land encounters. These are uh, um, where, where border agents will encounter illegal entrance, people illegally, illegally entering the country. And in 2021, the blue line, uh, we see that it went from 50K uh, over time uh, up to about 150K, uh, getting close to 200K. Then 2022 is the yellow line, uh, getting up to 200K or better. And then um, 2023, uh, 250,000 or a little bit better, perhaps, and then kind of dipping down year to date. But these, these are land border encounters not necessarily arrests, as I understand it, but encounters. Um, that includes people that got away, as I understand it. Um, and anyway, we have, uh, uh, now this is late 2022 into 2023. Um, you, you'll notice that the grand total um, so far is 1.2 million, uh, a little bit over. And that's U.S. Border Patrol, um, U.S. Field oper Office of Field Operations is 167,000, and uh, it it provides lots of data there uh, from the official sources that uh, viewers can uh, you know save the screenshots and, and get this data themselves. So uh, lots going on there with these encounters, and uh, we have a video of Todd Benzman, I believe, of the, of the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd, have you um, have you ever seen anything like this? You've been doing this your professional life. Have you ever seen anything like this? Yes, I've seen this exact kind of thing for two and a half years. It's been going on uh, all along the border. The only difference now is that I think that the the human flow, uh, which has always been just unbelievably record smashing, vast, huge is going to be even more so. It's going to be on steroids, uh, you know, after Thursday, Friday. These people are ready to just challenge whatever's going on the uh, American side. The majority of the people that are crossing don't give a rap's butt about 
uh, whether or not they were going to get returned or anything like that. But the, the truth is, is that they suspect, as do I, that they are going to be continually released into the country. All the border facilities that they've built up for the last uh, year are filled to capacity. In fact, they're 150 percent at capacity, so they can't even hold these people. They have to release them. They announced yesterday that they are going to be doing safe street releases. That is code for we just have to let them go and wander and be on their own. And I believe that we're going to start to see that. Uh, Upriver, I'm hearing that there are huge groups starting to cross in areas that they never crossed before. Last night, uh, by the hundreds, they're going to be under the Andalusia Bridge. Again, we've seen that before. That's going to be a, a record that we've played already. Uh, so, you know, get ready. Uh now, what, what he said there about uh, seeing people cross areas that they've never crossed before is really important. Um, my uh, guy in the field, Wyatt, with the uh, Border Ranch security team, about 15 people that I mentioned earlier, which includes ex-Marines with lots of expertise, uh, what they're telling me is that um, some 30,000 or more who were not able to cross in Brownsville because Greg Abbott and the state police and the National Guard put up those multiple spools of concertina wire that you just saw in that video. Because of that, the um, uh, migrants, as they're called, cannot get through uh, Brownsville, which is about 45 miles to the uh, east of where I'm at near the Gulf. And due to that, they're going to be looking for more remote areas. So they're beginning to move, as they understand it, toward the Del Rio sector, toward Del Rio and Eagle, Eagle Pass and Normandy and Camado and towns like that. So once these storms die down, the expectation is the numbers are going to go up um, as uh, migrants that have not surrendered to the authorities or otherwise gotten in the country as they encounter this concertina wire, as they encounter barriers where there were none before or very few, as they do that, they'll move to these more remote areas. Then they'll be more vulnerable to the drug cartels and whatnot. And the last thing I'll mention is what's going on is really a two-tiered situation. In these remote areas, the, the drug cartels are running clandestine, subterranean, uh, very shadowy operations to move contraband, uh, and fentanyl and uh, hu human um, human beings, trafficking human beings, probably illegal guns and things like that. So what happens is the DPS and the Border Patrol all congregate toward the ports of entry where most of the women and children and some young men are coming in, where the massive numbers are coming up. And that takes away those assets from the more remote areas. And the only people taking up the slack are literally citizens operating largely on their own volition. And so that's that's the larger picture that you just don't get from the the mainline media. So I think that pretty much rounds it out at this point in time. There'll be much more, of course, in the days and weeks ahead. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mark. Incredible pictures. And it's just extraordinary that this is allowed to happen by the United States administration. Uh, right, David, uh, I'm afraid we've got to say you've got two video clips in this section on uh, uh, highly protected marine areas. We don't have them queued up, so so you're going to have to just explain them, if that's OK. No, OK. Um, right. So firstly, we've got um, 
the nature of the beast, the, Scot the, the Scottish highly protected marine areas. Uh, the introduction reads as follows. The Scottish Government's vision for the marine environment is clean, healthy, safe, productive, diverse seas. If anyone can explain to me what diverse seas are, I'm all ears. Uh, managed, they don't say by whom, but of course it means by the Scottish Government, uh, to meet long-term needs of nature and people. Through the Butte House Agreement, this is a political agreement with the Green Party, e extreme radical far-left um, uh, pseudo-environmentalists. Uh, Scottish ministers have committed to designate 10% of Scotland's seas as high, highly protected marine areas by 2026. These sites will, will provide high level of protection by placing strict limits on some human activities, such as fishing and aquaculture, whilst allowing non-damaging recreational activities to take place at carefully managed levels. So um, fishing is damaging. We got that, yes? Now, the clip that we can't show is Fergus Ewing, firstly, uh, explaining what he thinks of fishermen, the life they lead, uh, the dangers they run, um, the nature of the communities um, that uh, are centred around the fishing industry. And the second, the second clip was of him ripping that document up in Parliament um, and saying exactly what he thought of the way they were treating the fishermen. Uh, can I just um, ask a question, David, there that. a second? I mean, are we talking about just uh, commercial fishermen or are we talking about recreational fishermen as well? Uh, all fishermen, including recreational fishermen, yes. Wow. It's all, right. it's all controlled. There's no limit to the control. It's the Scottish government. Everything's controlled. Even, you know, even the surfers would be controlled if it's, you know, if they deem it necessary. Um, so, um, Fergus continues to speak out about the nature of Scottish politics under the influence of the Green Party. And he said a few things that were very astute. He said, we focused on the essentials between 2007 and 2014, and having a strong economy is the number one essential. We cared about people, we wanted them to succeed, we supported business, we, uh, we supported every walk of life, whether it was industry, farming, fishermen, we valued what they did. We said, you're worth something. You're worth something to Scotland. We seem to have stopped doing that now. This is very, this is very astute. Now, um, what has been the response to him speaking out against uh, legislation that's harmful to fishermen and um, also on legislation that's harmful to the oil industry and lots of other industries in Scotland? Well, the former uh, SNP chief, Murray Foote, um, he's not happy. He says, uh, Mr Ewing was rude. Uh, he believed he was bigger than the party because he was a son of former President Winnie Ewing. I thought that was a particularly cheap comment. He said, what's the point of having a whip if it's never cracked? As he called on him to be disciplined. Now, Hamza, Hamza heard this message and he said he may release the, the results of the bullying probe findings into Fergus Ewing. Uh, he said he'd be happy to check if there was an absolute legal bar to releasing the outcome of the investigation into the former, former cabinet secretary, Fergus Ewing. He said it was important to be as transparent as we can. Isn't that just lovely? Um, so uh, you, you'll notice the parallels with Westminster here. Anyone who speaks out against, uh, against the ideology that's been brought in by um, the far left and an ailment of uh, the civil service 
They're accused of bullying and hounded out of office. Yeah, seems to be a pattern. Uh, now, just on, on the point of Humza's, we need to be as transparent as we possibly can comment. This is how the SNP actually run their affairs. Um, the, the Sunday Post reporting here that chiefs use private laptops to stop colleagues leaking information. Um, the, the people are speaking out about this, calling uh, calling on on the swamp to be drained in Scotland, and goodness, there wouldn't be much left. Um, it, it also describes ridiculous meetings where they wouldn't hand out papers at the meeting. This is the senior management me meetings of the National Executive Committee of the part of the party. Um, they would say things like, we're not going to provide you with a paper copy of this. We'll pass around the laptop and you could read it on the screen. And that was the extent of what we got to see. They said, quote, there's no way to run an organisation in no other organisation I've ever been involved in would this have been accepted. So that's the level of transparency that Hamza actually has. But when it comes a chance to drop uh, Fergus Ewan in it because he's speaking out against Hamza's policies, then all of a sudden, Humza is very happy to be transparent. Um, it does make you wonder where he came from. More on that story in extra time. Um, okay, thank you, David. Now, uh, let's, we're just going to do a little bit of quick editing here and let's move on to uh, jury trials in Scotland. Right, okay. Uh, right, now, back in uh, 2020, um, there was an attempt by the Scottish government under the cover of COVID to take out jury trials and there was an uproar and it, it got dropped. So we have here the, uh, the, the daily record report from 1st of April, April Fool's Days 2020, trial without jury shelved after backlash. Now, shelved is only a temporary thing in Scotland. They always come back. So here we have Stuart Wayton, friend of UK column, writing in Spike about this where the SNP's elitist attack on trial by jury. So uh, the Scottish government, he writes, uh, thinks the public is too backward to sit in on sexual assault trials. So aided and abetted by the judiciary, it's mount mounting an elitist assault on the justice system. Um, so they're trying to abolish jury trials in rape cases. Uh, as far as politicians and senior judges are concerned, members of the public cannot be trusted to adjudicate on serious sexual offence cases. They think the public is has the wrong attitudes and is not sufficiently aware or educated. So that's their, that's their view. It's not gone down well, however. Here we have Scottish Legal News. Uh, this is from back in, um, <coughs> excuse me, November. Uh, Julia was trials. Frances McMenamin QC, so she's the, the most senior woman in the Scottish bar. Uh, she was saying that she had grave concerns over the proposals. Um, that they were removing democratic participation from Scotland's criminal justice system and would affect not only the accused persons, but the rights of every citizen in Scotland. She compared the retreat from trial by jury to Nazi Germany and communist China. Um, so she didn't miss them and hit the wall. And then it got uh, worse for the government uh, after that. Ben Borland and Express writing here, former Supreme Court judge warns no jury rape trials are a threat to Scottish courts. This is a former judge. Uh, Lord Hope of Craighead, he says that this uh, bill risks undermining the most basic principle of judicial independence. Uh, he said that uh, the unprecedented potential for judges to be removed if they fail to convict alleged rapists in sufficient numbers made him very uneasy. Now, who's in charge of this monstrosity? Well, it's Angela Constance, of course, because obviously 
Angela Constance defended the pilot plan for rape trials without juries. She said um, jurors were influenced by rape myths, such as why the victim did not escape the attacker or report the offence earlier. She said evidence suggests this. Suggests, really, okay. Ms. Constance also argued that judges would be required to produce written reasons for their verdict. So that seems very convincing. Um, meanwhile, uh, the jurist, uh, Legal News and Commentary magazine, reports that the Scottish lawyers are going to boycott uh, the rape trials without juries. Uh, Vice President of the Scottish Solicitors Bar Association, Stuart Murray, said there's a concern that the duty of one's peers has been removed uh, and... Uh, this takes to a great degree removes the diversity from the um, uh, the scene within the judicial system. Uh, leaves the system open to bias by single judges. So he sees it's uh, it's it's really contrary to the interests of justice as a whole. Now, um, it seems that that uh, boycott is now going to be pretty much throughout the Scottish legal profession. So none of the lawyers are going to go along with this. And I just want to point this out. Right? Because this is a unique moment. It's very rare now that you get an entire profession. And I'd have to say, if any profession is going to stand up, it is always the legal profession. Right? Much as they have their problems, they're the ones that will stand up and say to the government, no, right? you don't see the medics doing that. You don't see any of the other professions doing that. They're standing up and saying, no, this is an assault on liberty. You're not on. We're not doing it. And that's a moment to be applauded. Yes, yeah, we thoroughly agree with that, David. And I'd just say that uh, one only has to go into a family court hearing where there is a judge but no jury to witness the sheer horrors and abuses of a judicial system. That is how the children are, uh, are stolen from parents because, of course, it's all done essentially in a star chamber. Uh, OK, let's, Mark, let's move on to Bilderberg. Yes, our favorite group is finally coming around. They took this COVID break in 20 and 21 uh, with their kind of resources and connections. I don't necessarily believe they ever took an absolute break. There must have been some sort of uh, meeting level or private level uh, goings on in those off years. Uh, the first time they ever missed two years in a row since 1954 when they came into existence. But the Bilderberg Group apparently is going to meet in Lisbon, Portugal, and evidently, it'll be this coming Wednesday uh, or Thursday, whatever May 17 is, for about four days after that. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, what we're seeing on the screen here is Dan Dix, a Canadian journalist from Press for Truth. I've known Dan for, oh, probably 10, 12 years covering Bilderberg. And he seems to have broken the story. I'm not sure exactly who broke it. I've got different people that watch out for Bilderberg. And uh, I'll reach out uh, to. Uh, Chris Don, um, my friend Chris Don in uh, Chris Don Harris, that's a guy, Chris Don Harris in Wisconsin. He heard it through Dan and then he immediately called me. We've kind of got it set up that way. And uh, this is from Wikispooks, this next slide. And this is where it says, and I'm looking at my larger monitor, that they're going to meet at the Pastana Palace Hotel in Lisbon. And uh, the perpetrators, it says, is the Bilderberg Steering Committee. That's the way they word it. And sure enough, it says 17 May through the 20th of May. This is rather unusually early for them to meet. Usually, if they meet in May at all, it's the very latter part of May into June, or it's just June. 
mid, mid to early June, something like that. Uh, since I've been covering it in uh, since 2010, and before me, uh, Jim Tucker, and so on and, and so forth. Now, this next item here, get this. This is from a weekly tabloid in Portugal called, um, a little hard to read the top there. Uh, maybe you guys can read it. Uh, the upper right corner. Uh, it's got an unusual name. Tells, tells, is, I think it's Tal 6 Qual. Yeah. T-A-L yeah. number 6 Q-U-A-L. Right, right. That's a tabloid there in Portugal. And this is in Spanish, of course, but they broke the story evidently last November. Uh, and uh, this came up only more recently on the Wikispooks website. So uh, that's pretty good work for them. And it appears to be accurate. This is the hotel, not exactly a Super 8 shack along a lonesome U.S. highway where they'll be meeting. Uh, can you imagine what a room there costs? So pretty posh, pretty posh. And, uh, of course, you have a number of newer viewers on UK Column that have gotten interested about the COVID issue, and that's what brought them to UK Column. You might be, uh, before we get into a little bit more detail, you might be interested why we care about Bilderberg. Well, it's about 130, 140 people from North America and Europe primarily that meet every year, pretty much every year. They've done so since 1954 with minimal interruptions, and they're the cream of the crop of government and Big tech, that's more recently big tech, and uh, royalty, a little bit of that, uh, and um, think tanks and um, major bankers, current and former um, finance ministers, treasury secretaries, defense secretaries, current and former, usually the head of the CIA, usually somebody high up in British intelligence, always the head of NATO. And so these are not small players. And the big problem is they say they're meeting in their private capacity, not in their public capacity. And as independent journalists like us have always said, you simply can't do that. You're invited because you are the head of NATO. You're invited because you are the head of the CIA. So your private capacity, you cannot just make that transition magically. Um, you cannot erase your public uh, persona, your public job what the tax dollars uh, support you to do. And so if you meet privately with private people whose agendas are largely unknown, we don't know what's gonna be cooked up in those kitchens. And under Chatham House rules, you don't, you don't even have to reveal it. And yes, Bilderberg has a website, a nominal website, BilderbergMeetings.org. And yes, they publish whose ostensibly there. We don't know if the list is complete or totally accurate. And they publish what they say they're talking about but we don't know the full nature of the listed topics. And we, of course, uh, strongly suspect and have reason to believe that there are topics discussed that are not listed in the press releases on that website. So this is the big problem. It's the total lack of transparency, uh, this uh, trying to operate in the cone of silence, uh, kind of like the old Get Smart Spy comedy show that used to be on in America. Uh, that just doesn't wash with people interested in open government. So that's why we're interested in Bilderberg. Uh, this next slide here, we'll just kind of wrap this up. Uh, the Bilderberg group also has an advisory committee consisting of a very small number of people that's shown in the next slide. And the Bilderberg advisory committee, um, it consists of, uh, well, let me, let me make this clear. It, this group may not exist anymore. 
but the Bilderberg Advisory Committee was evidently formed in 1981. This is not the same as this as the steering committee, which decides who to invite, where to have the meeting, what topics to discuss, and all the logistics. That's the steering committee, 30, 35 people, no more than 40. But this um, more exclusive advisory committee, evidently formed in 1981, um, has included Giovanni Agnelli. He's with Fiat Motors. George W. Ball, a uh, American statesman, uh, Ernest Vanderbugel, a Dutchman, I believe, William P. Bundy, longtime CIA, uh, Kennedy White House, JFK, uh, in his day, Anthony G. S. Griffin, some of these people I don't know their pedigree, Henry Hines II, uh, Max Comstam, David Rockefeller, who passed away in 2017, that's David Sr., on uh, Eric Roll, who I cir circled here, and Otto Wolf Van Amrigen, or whatever. Moving on a little bit about Eric Roll, this is interesting to UK viewers. Sir Eric Roll, Lord Roll of Ipston, uh, he did a interview sometime back, I believe it was uh, in the 1970s, with the National Archives, the Harry S. Truman uh, Museum within that. And so Sir Eric Roll was evidently involved with this Bilderberg Advisory Committee. Just a, just a point of interest for UK viewers, I need not go into detail. And moving on from there, um, this is something from a Bilderberg-related official site that uh, tells a little bit more to viewers that aren't familiar with Bilderberg. And just to kind of refresh our own memories, from a legal point of view, the organization commonly called the Bilderberg Group as a foundation registered under Dutch law, and that's uh, Stichting Bilderberg Meetings, whatever, the office of which is in Amsterdam. And I know that to be true. I believe it's it, it always was true. I believe it still is. This is administered by a board of trustees comp composed of four persons. So this is even smaller than the advisory group. A president, uh, today the Dutch businessman and academic Victor Halberstadt, a treasurer, German banker, Paul B. Ochtleiner, Ochtleiner, boy, I hope I'm saying that right, Ochtleitner, there we go, uh, the president of the American Friends of Bilderberg today, Marie Jose Kravis, uh, her husband is a big financial wheel in the United States, and the president of the steering committee, the largest of those groups, Henry D. Castries, who is a longtime insurance magnate. They're supported in action by the steering committee. Only members and former members of the steering committee can be uh, fully considered members of the group, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a little bit more about Bilderberg structure that's not often discussed. We usually only hear about the steering committee, not these other smaller committees. And the American Friends of Bilderberg, which publishes uh, regular tax forms that I look at for financial details, is a foundation created back in 1975. That's the year Jim Tucker started uh, doing his Bilderberg hounding. And it's based in Washington and legally represents the interests of the group in the United States and a similar group called the Bilderberg Association, there's another grouping, is a UK registered charity, which has as its trustees, the, Bri the British members of that steering committee, Zanny Mitten-Beddoes, editor-in-chief of The Economist, and Sir John Sowers, a director of British Petroleum and the former head of MI6. So this is uh, naming names and groupings to show the Bilderberg structure, why it's important. And these are just topics that were covered in, in the most recent times. Last year, they came out of their COVID hiding and met in Washington, D.C. Uh, they talked about, and they have a lot of one-name one, one name 
topics, which creates, of course, some nebulous situations. NATO, China, Russia, and, and NATO, China, and Russia have been on Bilderberg agendas repeatedly, I might add. Uh, some other ones that I marked, continuity of government and the economy going hand in hand with disruption of the global financial system. And that's an interesting pairing um, I might ob observe here from last year when they met at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Washington, D.C., where the Trilateral Commission met in 2014, a, a meeting that I infiltrated. But 2019, uh, before the, the pandemic break, uh, they, they met in Switzerland. And we see uh, Brexit was on there, the future of capitalism. Once again, China and Russia. Uh, I'm reading off my larger monitor here. Uh, the weaponization of social media is an important one. Cyber threats, uh, uh, the the ethics of artificial intelligence, what next in Europe, climate change and sustainability, which is a big thing with the global cities movement. That ties into my um, Urban 7 article that was just posted. So that's the latest. Um, I had hoped to hear from Dan Dix, the Canadian journalist, to get more, but that'll probably be in the near future. But uh, this is a fairly early revealing of where and when Bilderberg is evidently meeting. They have The last thing I'll say is they haven't posted it yet, as far as they know, on the official Bilderberg website. So in that way, we beat him to the punch, uh, beat him to the punch a little bit, as, of course, did Dan, uh, Dan Dix, who kind of led the way on this one. So there we go. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Uh, of course, many people in UK, USA, worldwide, still not aware of the power of the Bilderberg group when they get when they get together. Uh, but you've taken the lid off the organisation there, and it will be interesting to see what the latest debate uh, produces. But uh, yeah, these are the unelected people who are controlling national and international policy. Yes, okay, brilliant, thank you. Uh, right, David, we're well out of time, but let's just uh, have a look at a final slide. Yeah, this, this may resonate with anyone who's not uh, in the medical profession, but has been speaking out about uh, the, the efficacy of masks and vaccines and all-cause mortality under COVID. And it's a woman saying, well, this is how she feels when someone tries to insult me by saying I'm not a doctor, but it's a compliment because I'm not the third leading cause of death in the country. Silence. Yes. We'll leave it there. We'll say, David, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Mark, also, uh, we will have a UK column extra time in a few minutes. Um, so if you're signed up with the UK column, please come and join us. If you're not, consider taking out a subscription and uh, join in that extra time in a very much more re relaxed format. We'd love to have you. We'll end there. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye.